Welcome to episode 173, but that's not what I want. The Ethics of Self-Determination and Cultivating Medical Autonomy, featuring Diane Bigler, Licensed Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riaz, and today I am honored to be joined by Diane Bigler. Uh, she is a licensed clinical social worker, and one of her specializations has been working in not only the realm of ethics, but in the world of medical self-determination and basically how any of us are given permission and invited to make decisions about what we believe may be best for our families or for ourselves and I'm so happy um, that Diane decided to come and talk with us today on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Diane. Thank you so much, Beth. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very honored to be part of Clearly Clinical. Thank you for having me here today. Well, thank you again for joining us because I think, as you said, it is important for all of us, regardless of setting, to give this some thought because we're making decisions about our lives constantly, our clients, patients participants are making decisions as well. And those things are going to come up in therapy, regardless of where we work and how we work there. Um, Diane, how did you get this specialization? And tell me a little bit more about learning about this topic and developing it as an area of expertise. Sure. So my background in for the past 20 plus years has been in social work as licensed clinical social worker. And I've worked in various settings, community mental health. But a lot of my experience was providing in-home therapy to families that had a child that was under the age of three that had a developmental delay or a disability. And so as the clinical social worker that was on this team of other providers, one of my roles was to support that family and support the parents as they navigated their journey in parenting a child that had special needs. And so through my practice, I really began to work with these families and understand the complex situations that they were were facing when they took their children in for medical care, medical services, really looking at some of the ways in which they felt as though sometimes maybe their opinions, their perspectives or preferences were either respected or maybe not respected or valued by the professionals that they and their child were working with. And so over the course of several years, I really began to develop an interest, not only as a clinician, but as I really continued my journey as a, a trainer and professional educator, being able to weave in the concept of self-determination with ethics became an interest of mine as I began to collaborate more and more with a lot of healthcare and medical-based agencies. Thank you for sharing just how you got into this Um because it is a unique specialization. And I also want to note, sometimes clinicians find themselves working with individuals that have special medical considerations that they didn't expect to. You know, it's one of those things that just happens in life, and then we suddenly pivot. Um, I know for today's conversation, you wanted to start by framing this around a case study. I'm just going to leave you the mic and let you kind of set the stage. Thank you, Beth. Yes. So I'd like to open with this case study here that I'm going to read to you. And as I read this case study to you, I would like you to imagine this patient and imagine this scenario. 
an otherwise healthy 44-year-old woman recently diagnosed with aggressive leukemia, has been inpatient for several weeks receiving chemotherapy treatment. On the way back from testing in the hospital, the patient trips over her IV pole and falls to the ground. The patient is not injured in the fall. One of the patient's treating oncologist comes to the patient's room right after the fall and tells the patient that she will need to be put on fall risk status. The physician explains that when a blood cancer patient has a fall, they are immediately put on fall risk due to low blood counts, which can cause heavy bleeding if a fall occurs. The physician states that the patient will have to remain on 24-hour bed rest with an alarm for the remainder of her hospital stay, which will be at least a few more weeks. The patient will have to buzz a nurse to get out of bed, use the restroom, get dressed, etc. After the physician leaves, the patient is stunned. She feels well and is concerned about the implications of being in bed 24 hours a day and losing many aspects of her independence. The patient is very physically active in the hospital. She does yoga in her room and walks one to two miles a day on the hospital floor. The patient begins to fear being bedridden for weeks and losing the ability to move independently and exercise. For the next few days, the patient is frustrated, depressed, and despondent. When a different oncologist comes to the patient to visit 48 hours later, the patient decides to advocate for herself. She acknowledges the risks of falling, but clarifies that the fall was not due to dizziness or fainting, but instead due to tripping over the IV pole. The patient also stresses the significant emotional and mental toll that being bedbound for weeks will cause her. Finally, the patient expresses a strong desire to continue to exercise, citing that cancer patients who remain active do better in treatment. The patient requests that the oncologist consider removing her from fall risk and allowing her to regain her independence. The oncologist agrees to lift the fall risk status. After two successful vital readings, the patient is removed from fall risk status. The patient is elated and feels understood and respected by her provider. So that is a case study that I think really talks about this concept of self-determination and that for some patients, they may experience a situation in which their self-determination is maybe immediately compromised as this patient did here. The other thing I would like to share with you about this case study is that the patient was me. This was me three years ago when I was diagnosed with leukemia and I was on my journey of treatment in my first month of receiving my diagnosis when this particular fall happened in the hospital. And I then began to experience the personal uh, journey of what it means to have your self-determination compromised. So I share this case study with you to communicate that we never know when any of us, whether we are a clinician, a mental health professional, or not, that any of us may experience a situation in which we may have our own self-determination and autonomy compromised by providers, other individuals that are providing us with care. Now, one of the unique things I think about this particular situation, my situation and my experience and my outcome, is that I'm a social worker. I know what advocacy is. I understand 
how to advocate. And I was able to advocate for myself in this particular situation. But think about some of the individuals that we work with that may not have the same training, education, and background that we do. Do they know what advocacy is? Do they know what self-determination is? And are they able to advocate for themselves? Maybe so, but maybe not. And so that's why we as professionals do have a responsibility to understand what self-determination is and also understand some of the ethical implications when our patients are facing similar situations such as I did around self-determination. Thank you, number one, for sharing that case study and also your relationship to it. Um, I think it gives us as listeners a better understanding of how lack of freedom to choose affects somebody's soul. And certainly when a person has a a major medical issue, so commonly there's so much hopelessness and loss of control associated with that. And then to feel like there are things happening around you by the professionals that are supposed to be helping you um, that you don't agree with. I know that's something that I've experienced as a loved one, and it's it's a really difficult spot to be in. So thank you for your vulnerability and sharing that. Um, I think it also gives us the backdrop for why this conversation is so important and also for why this conversation is so applicable, not just to people in medical settings, but how quickly things change and we find ourselves involved in decisions that we didn't necessarily know we needed to make or that other people were going to be making for us, as you shared in your case. I know you have some other case studies that you want to talk about today. Do you want to present those now or would you like to dive into a conversation about self-determination? Let's uh, talk about self-determination. Let's maybe define self-determination and then talk about some of the the key aspects of it. And and then as we continue talking, I'll certainly weave in those case studies where we'll get an even deeper picture of how self-determination may be a little bit complex in some of these situations. So let's first talk about what self-determination theory is. This is a theory that has been around now for several decades. It's based on the work of Richard Ryan and Edward Decke, who really wanted to be able to quantify and identify the core components of self-determination. So I'd like to just talk about those three components now briefly. What Ryan and Decke identified in their research and in their study was that human beings have three basic needs. The first of those needs is competence. And this is when an individual really has the need to be able to gain mastery and control over their own lives and their own environment. And so as you saw in my case study that I presented, and you'll see in some of the other case studies, that this is an area that we really want to make sure we are exploring as clinicians, is really looking at the ways in which we can honor our patients or clients' competence, honor their own ability to be able to make decisions, have decisional capacity, and exert their opinions, as I did in my particular situation. The second need that was identified is autonomy. And this is when people really feel the need to be in control of their own life. While individuals, especially individuals that are receiving medical services, are in need of services by providers, they also still at the same time do have the desire generally to function autonomously. 
This means that they want to be able to have some say in uh, maybe their diet, maybe their medication regimen, maybe the uh, specialist that they are seeing or the test that they are willing to have done on themselves. And so we really see that sometimes patients really will have a desire to exert their autonomy. Sometimes patients may have a caregiver or an advocate that may be compromising that patient's autonomy. And so there are some complexities that can arise in this particular aspect of self-determination. And then finally, the last aspect of self-determination theory is relatedness. This really encompasses the need for us as human beings to have a sense of connection with others, to really be able to have a sense of belonging to feel as though that other people can understand where we're coming from and that they can relate to what our opinions, hopes, desires, and wishes are. So when we look at those three aspects of self-determination, we really begin to look at self-determination in the application of our work in the mental health and the healthcare field. And we know that in our field that self-determination is really defined as the client's ability to determine the appropriate level, if any, of medical intervention. And this is also the important part is that they have the right to change their opinion at any time. So if a patient initially is open to treatment, but then later decides that they would like to suspend treatment, not participate any further, that they do have the right to change their mind. And and this is a really important aspect when we are working with individuals that may have consented to something initially, but are now wanting to change their consent at some point in time. And then the last point that I'd like to mention just in framing our definition of self-determination is that we need to keep in mind that self-determination assumes that the client is mentally competent. And I think we can get into this more later when we talk about decisional capacity, but we really need to look at whether or not a patient has the ability um, from a neurocognitive or that capacity perspective, do they have decisional capacity and are they able to give consent? And they may not be able to, and that may change some of our direction in terms of self-determination. Thank you for so succinctly covering all of that. Um, So again, for our listeners who might just be driving to work or whatever they're doing as they listen to this, do you mind restating those three core concepts um, just so we can let them uh, solidify in our minds as we continue in this conversation? Absolutely. I like to think of them as a triangle. So at, at each point, first point, we have competence the ability for somebody to gain mastery. Then we have autonomy, which is feeling in control of our own lives. And then finally, that third component is relatedness, a sense of belonging and understanding with others. As you already touched upon, this opens up so many complexities about our ability to make decisions for ourselves. Where that line stops and starts, you already alluded to it about someone's cognitive ability in the moment? Are they quote unquote of sound mind? Um, Where would you like to go now in this conversation? Sure. So let's perhaps talk about uh, maybe a little bit about ethics and begin our conversation about some of the ethical considerations around our topic of self-determination. And as I'm talking about ethics, I think we'll begin to see where this is the, the common phrase in our field of that gray area 
that things are often not black or white, that generally a lot of ethical situations, there's going to be some complexities. And I think you'll begin to see those as, as listeners as we talk about ethics and then begin to frame ethics around some case studies. So what is an ethical dilemma? So an ethical dilemma, as you all know, is generally when we have competing ethical principles that are in conflict with one another. This is when if we go in this direction, there may be some uh, level of potential harm or uh, some level of, of potential threat to a client. But if we go in this direction, there may also be some potential drawback or there's pros and cons to every side of an ethical dilemma. Ethical dilemmas are not necessarily a matter of what's right or wrong. That's one of the biggest misconceptions that oftentimes as practitioners, when we are facing an ethical dilemma, there are two equally important ethical standards, but one of them has to rise to the top as being the more important ethical principle. And therein lies the ethical dilemma is when we have to compromise an ethical principle, standard, or value in order to uphold a more important ethical principle, standard, or value. And this can cause some some stress for the clinician because uh, it, it seems as though whatever direction or decision you make, there may be a potential consequence. The patient may be upset. The patient may be in uh, uh, potential for harm or, or further uh, perhaps compromising of, of their situation. But we have to make a decision in these cases. And so as I begin to outline these case studies, I think you'll begin to see where there is a case to be made for this decision and there's a case to be made for this decision. And we're going to talk about how the clinicians have maybe arrived at their decision and, and the ethical factors that they have considered. The other thing that I just want to mention uh, for those of you in the audience that are social workers, and, and even if you're not a social worker, but if you are a social worker in our NASW Code of Ethics, we do have an ethical principle, which is 1.02, self-determination. And so I'd like to just read this. And, and as a social worker, and even those that are not social workers, I think that what is in the Social Work Code of Ethics is a good uh, kind of base for us to continue this discussion. Social workers respect and promote the rights of clients to self-determination and assist clients in their efforts to identify and clarify goals. So the code of ethics is clear in that we do have a responsibility as social workers to understand what self-determination is and to promote the right of self-determination with our clients. There's also a second part in the code of ethics that is important. Social workers may limit clients' right to self-determination when, in the social worker's professional judgment, clients' actions or potential actions pose a serious, foreseeable, and imminent risk to themselves or others. So herein lies the rub. When we have a code of ethics that says, honor and respect your client's self-determination, but then the second part of that ethical standard says, however, keep in mind that there may be times in which your client's self-determination uh, may not be able to be upheld, that we may need to step in and we may need to usurp their right to self-determination if there are factors that uh, warrant us ethically, legally, clinically needing to do that. 
So that's a little bit of, of a framing of that ethical standard and our responsibility both ways to protect client self-determination, but also sometimes client self-determination will not be uh, the best choice. And therein lies the rub. Um, that's that's why this is yes. such a can of worms. And I think sometimes why it's so complicated for clinicians when there isn't an easy path to take. And I know I've certainly been in the experience or the situation where I have conflicting ethical guidelines and the amount of consultation and phone calls and note writing that I'm doing as I try to sort through, well, what do I do now? And as I think about it, some of those absolutely had to do with medical self-determination. Um, and let's start by saying that it is not a comfortable position for anybody to be in as a clinician. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You are so right about that Beth, and in, in how a practitioner may wrestle with, you know, these different considerations, because at the end of the day, we want our clients to be safe. We want our clients to, to have a level of independence and, and have a level of autonomy that, that we respect. But sometimes if we feel as though that will put them in further harm, we may need to consider some other options. And that brings me to two key concepts that we borrow from the, the medical bioethics field that I think are really important in our conversation around ethical responsibility of in self-determination. And those two terms are autonomy and beneficence. When we look at medical bioethics and when we look at the concepts of autonomy, which in the United States, respect for autonomy is, is a big principle. In our country, we value freedom, we value medical freedom. And so in most cases, we are going to give citizens and patients the, the freedom and the autonomy to make their own medical decisions. So when you and I go to the doctor we can generally, we can make decisions about our care. We can make decisions about who we see and who we don't see as providers. We can make a decision whether or not we want to take a medication or stop taking a medication. We can also make a decision whether or not we want to have a procedure or a surgery or any kind of medical intervention. So that is a really important concept in, in that culturally within our U.S. culture, we do respect autonomy. However, when a person cannot make their own decisions, this is when we begin to see that practitioners may struggle with taking away a patient's autonomy or right to self-determination if there are circumstances that warrant, uh, as we saw in that social work code of ethics, if the social worker's judgment leads them to maybe this client should not have their full autonomy. We also know that uh, there are some, if I could just share some examples of ways in which we as providers promote autonomy. There are many different ways in which we promote autonomy in our healthcare system. We present patients with all treatment options. So that's how we encourage autonomy as we share with patients a variety of options for treatment. We also explain risks. That's another important part of our, our U.S.-based healthcare system and giving patients autonomy is explaining the risks and the benefits of certain medications, procedures, etc. 
We also allow in this country for individuals to defer to another person to be making their healthcare decisions. And we're going to be talking more about that later in some of the, the case studies that I'll present. But there is the option in our U.S. healthcare system to designate somebody else. And oftentimes we see that culture may be a factor in some of these cases where a patient may designate a family member to be making their healthcare decisions and be their proxy decision maker. The other term that I just want to touch on when we look at concepts of bioethics and the application to self-determination for us as clinicians is beneficence. And beneficence is another one of those medical bioethic terms. And this is really defined as the action that is done for the benefit of others. So I'd like you to keep that in mind as we continue to talk about ethics and look at these case studies that beneficence is the action that is done for the benefit of others. And in some cases, in order to arrive at that place of making the best decision for the patient, we do need to engage in an ethical decision-making process. We do need to look at all of the facts in a situation, and we actually may need to consult with other colleagues, supervisors, people within our realm in order to be able to uh, figure out what is the best course of action. As you're talking about that, I'm reflecting on my own experiences. And as you touched upon already, sometimes things are happening very quickly. um, And we may not feel like we have the opportunity as patients, as clients to really take in information to make a decision. And I appreciate what you're saying here in this element of autonomy, of making sure that we have that ability as much as we can to kind of catch our breath and think through what might be right for us. And I know as I'm listening to you talk about this, as I've been open in other podcast episodes, as a parent with a medically fragile child, there have been times where I feel like I'm being told basically what I have to do. And sometimes it's been a or else. And then we get into a really uncomfortable territory. And you're nodding as I say that. Right. Um, And I'm thinking of many friends that I've known who have had major medical illnesses that felt like their desire for making certain changes before proceeding with surgery or before doing radiation or whatever it was, that it wasn't supported. And then they had to quote unquote doctor shop in order to find somebody that they felt like was listening to what their priorities were before they moved to a more severe or invasive action. Um, this is not a small topic that you've bitten off here, Diane. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It certainly is not. There are a lot of complexities, Beth, and as you mentioned, really looking at some of the challenges that it can pose to patients and and family members and, and caregivers if they are met with a provider, whether that provider is a physician, a nurse, a social worker, a psychologist, but really looking at any provider that is not open to hearing the opinions or the concerns of the patient or of the family members. And in some ways does, uh, and you'll hear this term, I'm going to mention this term later, but paternalizes that patient and, and perhaps, you know, tries to exert too much control. And as you said, it's kind of this, well, do this or else, or really pressuring a patient to, you know, accept a certain treatment or agree and consent to a certain procedure. And, and that is a reality. And I think that's another reason why I wanted to do this topic is, is to help us 
not only for our own practice, but to to model for those providers that we're working with and to try to encourage other providers to value and, and look at the complexities around self-determination. If we can all do that and if we can encourage other providers to have an open mind, I think that it will maybe contribute to reducing some of those instances where patients and families feel as though they're, they're being pressured and not being fully understood that they have their own opinions or concerns about their treatment options. When it comes to this playing out in therapy, what I'm envisioning is the aftermath or as it's unfolding of a patient saying, I just had this blood work and it turns out I have yada, yada, yada. And my doctor said, I need to do X, Y, Z. And I'm just really confused. and I don't know what to do. And then wanting to come into therapy. Can you talk about that kind of from the therapeutic standpoint of, of how do we try to keep the water as clean as possible when we're wading into complicated ethical dilemmas? Great question, Beth. And I have some some great things to share in that regard that I think will help us further understand the role of the clinician in, in supporting a patient. So let's talk a little bit more about the practitioner's responsibility ethically and, and how they can ethically support a patient therapeutically, ethically in having conversations around uh, self-determination. So The first thing I'd like to talk about to address your question is the necessary skills for practitioners in facing these situations with clients and with patients around self-determination. The first step for a provider in facing the kind of situation that you're describing is being able to conduct an ethical assessment. I think we can talk more about this later, but this is basically involving, you know, having knowledge of your own profession's code of ethics. I read to you the social work code of ethics, but if you are a um, LPC or you're a psychologist, you know, looking at your own code of ethics and, and investigating what does it say about self-determination and autonomy. You also need to have an understanding of your agency policies. If you're within an agency, a hospital or medical setting, what are the policies there? Because there may be some conflict uh, that arises between policy in the hospital setting and code of ethics and the patient wishes. And then you also want to be able to do within your ethical assessment, any religious, spiritual, or cultural values of your patient. So part of that initial step is, is assessing as we do in a lot of cases is getting as much information that we can to, to figure out what are all of the the aspects of this case. The next thing we need to do is we need to be able to take a, a problem solving approach. We need to be able to look at all of these different factors, the patient factors, uh, the, the ethical factors, if there's any cultural factors. And we need to be able to incorporate, you know, what may, may be some of the best options in this particular case. And then, of course, we also need to have interpersonal abilities. We need to have the ability to be empathetic with that patient that you're describing, Beth, that is, you know, really maybe struggling. They're feeling pressured by a provider to accept a certain treatment. And maybe they come to you as the social worker or as the counselor saying, you know, I'm going through this illness and my doctors are really wanting me to do this, but I have some beliefs or I have some concerns and, and I don't know what to do. You know, they're doctors. I feel like they know everything and I'm just the patient. And so what do I do? So it's really important that, that a provider that has a, a patient that comes to them with this dilemma, that they are empathetic and they are compassionate and, the, and they can be a good listener. 
there is a good model that I'd like to share with the audience that can really help practitioners in these situations when you may be uh, working with a patient that is experiencing a challenge with regard to their self-determination. And it's called the four-box method. The four-box method. You can find this online if you just do a Google search of the four-box method. It was actually introduced by a philosopher, a physician, and an attorney. So that the, these three individuals by the last names of Johnson, Siegler, and Winslade, respectively, so a philosopher, a physician, and an attorney, really wanted to be able to create a framework that could be used, especially in medical settings, to help patients and help practitioners be able to figure out situations where autonomy and self-determination may be a factor and there may be a dilemma. So there's four different areas, if you can imagine like a grid with four different boxes. And what these, these creators envisioned was that each of these grids, each of these squares has one of these four key areas. And the first area in this four box method is medical indications. This is where we need to list all of the different medical indications, a bulleted list of the patient's diagnosis, current symptoms, current functioning, all of just the facts around their medical indications. The next box in this four box method is patient preferences. So if you're working with a patient that is facing a challenge regarding self-determination, we would want to ask them, what is your preference? What do you wish would happen? What would you like to happen? What option are you leaning towards? And what is your reasoning behind wanting to go to this option versus maybe the ones that the providers are really wanting you to do? Within this box, we also have to determine if the patient is decisional. Do they have that decisional capacity? Do they have the ability cognitively to make their own decision? If they do, that is great because this means that we can assist them in advocating. If they don't, that's a whole nother conversation in terms of their lack of decisional ability. The third box in the four box method is quality of life. And this is really where we're looking at factors such as how will the patient's quality of life be impacted if we go with this decision versus maybe this decision. If you think back to my case study that I read to you at the beginning and you think about, you know, how active I was when I was in the hospital and how movement and exercise was very important in terms of me being able to work through the experience of cancer and getting treatment and how when I was put on bed rest, that suddenly was taken away from me. And so sometimes we have to look at really what is the impact on the patient's quality of life if we go with option A versus option B, B versus option C. And then finally, the fourth area of the four box method is contextual features. These are features such as are there any legal issues? Are there any policies within the hospital that may be in conflict with the patient's desire or wishes. We also want to look at risk to society or just risk or cost to society. Are there any cultural factors that really need to be considered that we would put in this fourth box of contextual features? So just to recap, the four box method is medical indications, patient preferences, quality of life, and contextual features. 
So I think that if a clinician can work this four box method into their support of a patient that is struggling with some self-determination, a self-determination issue, this is going to give that practitioner a very well-rounded way to approach this situation in a in an ethical and empathetic way with the patient. Thank you. I appreciate you breaking that down and just the importance of even providing psychoeducation to a client about those ideas, because I know I've had the experience, sometimes things are happening so quickly in medical environments that you almost feel pinned up against a wall where it's like, we have to decide now. And it's like, I need a minute. (laughs) Um, But that if we kind of reframe our right to self-determination and autonomy and let clients know that this should be an expected way for them to engage, that maybe it takes away the fear and saying, can I have five minutes as I think about what needs to happen right now? Um, I think that's really important because there, as you've already mentioned, there's such a big power differential and there are so many options often available to us medically, whether that's a Western route or we're looking at Eastern medicine intervention or functional medicine or spiritual intervention, all these options that sometimes we feel compelled by a practitioner that says, well, this is the only way. Um, I think just basically providing that psychoeducation of, well, maybe it's not, and it's okay to look at these other aspects as your decision making what's best for you. That's a that's a great point, Beth. And, and I think, you know, that may be a good segue into uh, presenting a case study that kind of speaks to your point about sometimes, especially in medical settings, my experience is this can be the case is that, yes, there are things in a medical setting that do require a sense of urgency. However, with ethical dilemmas, there are going to be some ethical dilemmas that may need to be, the decision may need to be made in this moment, but there are also going to be some ethical dilemmas where we can take a little bit of time. We can consult with others, that the decision does not have to be made in the next 90 seconds, that we can take 15 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe even a couple of hours to figure out what is really the best course of action, especially if there's not an imminent need to make that decision immediately. So I mentioned earlier, I briefly mentioned the concept of decisional capacity and really looking at, you know, one of the areas that we really need to look at in self-determination, especially when we're faced with these ethical dilemmas, is somebody's decisional capacity. So I think for the audience, it would be helpful just to frame, you know, what is decisional capacity and talk a little bit about that. And then I'd like to share a case study that relates to both decisional capacity and then also what you just talked about, Beth, about we have to make a decision right away, (laughs) when in some cases we don't have to make a decision right away. So in healthcare, we know that there's the concept of decisional capacity. And this is a legal term that is often used in medical and health healthcare settings. And decisional capacity is defined as a specific decision that is confronting the patient. So should I get chemotherapy? Should I start taking this medication? Should I uh, go see this specialist and this provider and have these tests done? The other term that is important when we're talking about self-determination is the term competence. And while decisional capacity is based on making a decision about a particular 
situation, competence is more of the global ability of the patient to make decisions. So I'll give you a, a good analogy. My father, my, my father who has passed away uh, when he was alive had Parkinson's and dementia. And as a lot of you know, the combination of Parkinson's and dementia um, begins to present uh, neurocognitive challenges to that individual. And so over time and progressively, my father's um, ability to make decisions began to become compromised. So my mother became his power of attorney, which means that for those global decisions, those bigger decisions, for example, him entering hospice care, um, a medication change, going from a solid food diet to more of a semi-solid food diet, my mom was the one that gave the permission for those bigger decisions. But for some of the smaller decisions that my dad still had decisional capacity to make. So when I would ask my dad, you know, would you like um, a piece of chocolate or would you like an orange? He could make a decision if he would like a piece of chocolate or he would like an orange. Would you like to wear uh, a pair of jeans today or would you like to wear a pair of shorts? Uh, so him being able to make some of these smaller decisions was still present, but his overall competence had been compromised to the point where my mother had to make those bigger decisions. So sometimes with patients, we see that they may be able to make some small decisions. They may be able to consent to, yes, I will have my blood drawn for this procedure, but those bigger decisions in terms of competence, they may not be able to make. And so really as providers, we need to be looking at a particular situation to say, does this patient have decisional capacity in this situation or not? If they do not have decisional capacity, then somebody else is going to have to make the decision. And for our patients that don't have competence, for example, a patient that has a neurocognitive disorder, there will be other people that are likely going to be making those larger care-based decisions. So how do we assess decision-making capacity? So for providers that are wondering, you know, how do we assess if somebody has the ability to make decisions, there are some key ways that we can do this. The first one is we can conduct a mental status exam, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, where we gather information on the client's connection with reality, their functioning in terms of their current mental status. Are they oriented to time, place, person? Are they able to um, recall information? Do they have short-term memory? Is their thought process congruent? Uh, we can also assess, and oftentimes providers will assess the short-term memory of a patient, their attention to the interviewer. Are they able to pay attention to the interviewer? Are they looking off into space and not really able to track with conversations? Can they comprehend detailed information? We know in medical settings, sometimes we need to give patients detailed information. And if somebody is not able to comprehend detailed information, then we may be looking at a surrogate decision maker. And then finally, can the person follow directions? If they can't follow directions, they may not have decision-making capacity to make a decision in this particular case. So with all of that being said, in terms of framing you know, the concepts of decisional capacity, which is in this particular decision that's confronting me as a patient, do I have the ability to make the decision? And then competence, which is more of that global ability of a patient to make decisions, I'd like to share with you a case study 
that, again, Beth, picks up on your point of not all ethical dilemmas need to be decided in this nanosecond. So Mr. Benton was in surgery when the employee health service was notified that one of the healthcare workers had been exposed to the patient's blood during the surgery. The hospital policy required that the patient be tested for HIV to be sure that the healthcare worker could be treated quickly in the event there was a positive finding. It was late afternoon on a Friday, which usually all of these situations happen late afternoon on a Friday. So true. And the health services... It is so true, ironically. And the health services wanted to begin testing and needed his, the Mr. Benton, the patient, his consent to do so. Since he was anesthetized, he was unable to consent. And the health service nurse asked the social worker to find the patient's wife so that her consent as his surrogate could be obtained. Okay, so in this case, we have a patient that is under anesthesia. And there's been a healthcare worker that has been exposed to the patient's blood. And whenever that happens, there's a protocol in the hospital. And the nurse is wanting immediately from the social worker, please get the wife's consent to draw the patient's blood so that we can, we need this blood right now. We need to be able to run this testing. So this presented a dilemma for the social worker. The social worker you know, upon receiving this very urgent request from the nurse, thinks, you know, the patient was able to consent prior to surgery. There's no reason to expect that the patient could not consent after surgery. However, the nurse was really anxious, right? We need that. We need the blood right away. We can't wait 30 minutes or an hour. We need the blood right away. And the social worker thought, you know, the patient is going to be coming out of surgery in the next hour or two. Can we wait? until the patient comes out of surgery to get his consent directly instead of taking away this patient's consent and having the wife make the decision. So, you know, you may be thinking in this case, well, what's the big deal of just drawing the the blood of the patient while he's under anesthesia? How would he ever know that his blood was drawn? But what if, what if this patient finds out that his blood was drawn, which he probably will in some way, And what if this patient is upset that he was not asked if his blood could be drawn? He was not specifically asked that his wife instead gave consent. Maybe he didn't want his wife giving consent in this particular case. And so in this case, the social worker made the decision and advised the nurse to wait for the patient to come out of anesthesia. It was important from the social worker's perspective to allow the patient to consent for himself and urgency was not required as obtaining that blood would meet the hospital's requirement of the 24-hour rule that they follow in testing of healthcare providers if there's been exposure. So I think, you know, Beth, when you mention sometimes there's a provider that has the mentality of, oh, this is an urgent, right in this moment, we need the patient's blood, you know, let's circumvent the patient's autonomy and let's just go directly to the wife. And the social worker here was able to really step back and say, wait just a second. Let's consider a lot of different factors. Let's consider the imminence of risk, which really there isn't. Um, Especially with HIV now, it's not considered a a deadly or, or disease of mortality. And so we don't have this immediate within the next five minutes, we do not have to get the patient's blood. We can wait for the patient to come out of anesthesia 
and then we can ask the patient to consent for the blood draw. Now, some in the audience may be saying, well, I don't know, you know, our hospital may make a different decision. And therein lies that very big gray area that likely no two providers or no two hospital systems are always going to make the exact same decision. But I think, Beth, that this case study kind of alludes to your earlier point about sometimes we do just need to pause and we do need to stop before we make a reactive decision that may later lead to some unintended consequences. Well, and I think that's another element of that psychoeducation that we as mental health providers can be offering that if if we're in the midst somehow of a decision being made to be able to say, you know, how, how basically how much time do I have? Um, and I know as a patient and as a caregiver, I've absolutely been in a situation where it felt like you need to make that call now. And even for me, it's helpful for you to say, yeah, and maybe we can take a beat uh, and just let patients know. It's like, yeah, yeah, you need to make this decision, but how much time do you have? And it's okay for you to ask that. And then also to ask for support from somebody like a social worker to kind of make a little space, maybe gent- gently elbow things around to give you a little bit more breathing room if there is time to have that um, that consideration. Um we don't have a ton of time left. And I mean, there's so many rich examples that you're giving us. One of the things that's been occurring to me, what about the concept of self-determination with regard to minors? I mean, this, this in and of itself is its own conversation. But can you touch on that a little bit just as a concept for our listeners to be chewing on? Absolutely. And you're right, Beth, that is that could be a whole nother topic in and of itself. But I think it's great that we can at least talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how does self-determination uh, maybe remain the same, but also maybe change in the context of, of minors. So there is, uh, some of you may not be aware of this, but there's actually a U.S. law called the Mature Minor Doctrine Law. So I just want to talk a little bit about this and give some examples of where we may see some of the nuances of self-determination specific to the care of minors. So what the Mature Minor Doctrine Law says is that a minor who is deemed able to understand short and long-term consequences is considered to be mature and is able to provide informed consent or refusal for medical services. Now, this maturity allows minors to make some decisions regarding their medical treatment. It does not, however, provide this open ability for minors to make all of their decisions. There are limitations to this law. So what are the circumstances that we as providers need to be aware of that this law applies to minors? So basically, this means that if these circumstances I'm going to read are present, then a minor has more rights to self-determination than uh, than most other minors. And those situations are if a minor is 14 years or older, the minor is capable of giving informed consent, so cognitively, developmentally capable, the treatment will benefit the minor, the treatment does not present a great risk to the minor, and the treatment is within established medical protocols. And so I want to talk just a little more specifically about that because there are some minors that are able to provide more uh, of an open consent and have more self-determination. And those minors include minors that are pregnant. So for example, a pregnant minor can consent to their own medical care and services, even surgery. A minor who is married 
So some minors are legally married and they are able to consent to their own services. A minor in the armed services, a minor with a child. So a minor with a child can uh, can consent for medical and dental care or surgery for that child. A minor living apart from parents who is financially self-reliant. Also, did you know that a victim of sexual assault or abuse that is a minor may consent to medical care or counseling? Also, um, the other resource that I'd like to share with the audience, with listeners, is the Guttmacher Institute. If you go to the Guttmacher Institute, they have a great chart that is state by state that breaks down the different um, services that minors can consent to, healthcare services. This includes um, STD testing, any contraception, prenatal care, abortion services, mental health treatment, emergency care, and alcohol and drug abuse treatment. So the Guttmacher Institute, which is spelled G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R, has a great state-by-state chart that will give you a lot of specificity regarding minors. So those are some of the things that we look at with minors. We really need to understand some of those categories of minors that are um, really eligible to be able to make more of their own decisions. The other thing that we want to do with minors that perhaps don't have that legal right to self-determination but are wanting to make a different decision is, of course, listen be empathetic, validate their wishes and their choices. And then you really want to try to see if there's any bridge compromise with this minor and the other parties that are involved. Um, Sometimes, unfortunately, Beth, there's going to be cases in which that minor's wishes are not going to be able to be upheld. Because in this country, we still legally do believe that minors do need protection and and they do sometimes need to have decisions made by adults. And so that may present some unique ethical dilemmas. When a patient is a minor and they're wanting to make a decision uh, that conflicts with what the hospital policy is or what the parent or the hospital uh, believes is the right decision. Speaking as a parent who has had to make some very difficult decisions on behalf of a minor who absolutely does not satisfy any of those considerations, I've certainly considered the implications for that child to not have the right to say yes or no, and just the complexity of the tone that's being set in that child's life relating to self-determination. As you said, this could be its own separate conversation and just a minor's rights. With the little time we have left, I would love for you to talk for just a few minutes about cultural considerations relating to medical self-determination. And again, those ideas that we providers need to be keeping in our minds when working with clients who are in the midst of this. Yes, cultural considerations. I'm glad that we do have some time to talk about that because it is something that we need to be cognizant of in the context of self-determination. We know that, you know, our medical bioethics in this country are based on this Western, uh, generally this white middle class Western kind of viewpoint. And when we have patients who have their own cultural identities and own cultural beliefs, practices, rituals, and preferences, this is when we can see maybe some conflict and we can see maybe there can be some challenges that arise. So I'd like to share with with the audience 
a, a book that was so impressionable on me when I was in graduate school in my cultural diversity class. And the book is called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. And this is a story about a Hmong family in California who has a young daughter who is about two years old named Leah. And this is the Lee family. And uh, Leah uh, had begun having seizures when she was a young child. And the family believed that her seizures uh, made her special. They believed that her illness was something called quagdab peg, or the spirit catches you and you fall down. So they believed that her illness was partly due to spirits and not just biologically based. They brought Leah for treatment at a medical center in California. The family also used traditional healing methods, including a shaman. They really believed in the practice and the use of shamans in their culture to be able to bring about healing for certain illnesses and diseases. However, Leah's doctors at this medical center believed that her seizures were purely due to neurological reasons. They were not supportive of the, quote, non-traditional Eastern practices of using a shaman and using other methods of healing. There were two physicians that were involved in her case. The other thing that's really important to mention that was uh, mentioned throughout the book is there was a lack of interpreters used. There was a significant language barrier between this family and the English-speaking providers, and there was no interpretation services provided. So as you can imagine, with no interpretation services and a family that has very specific cultural beliefs that are conflicting with the traditional Western approaches, uh, we know that uh, that can be a, a challenge. So the providers ended up hotlining this family for lack of compliance, and Leah's health began to deteriorate. She began to have more significant seizures because the family did not understand the medication regimen. And Leah was removed, put in foster care. She was eventually reunited with her family uh, and lived for another 27 years as somebody that was very, very um, highly, highly uh, medically fragile and disabled. She was in a vegetative state for about 26 years until she passed away at the age of 33. Her family cared for her for this entire time and continued to use shamans as part of their healing practices. But in this particular case, we see the intersection. And in the book, the author, Anne Fadiman, does an amazing job of detailing the pitfalls that occurred in this particular case, how the providers failed to recognize the cultural preferences and cultural beliefs of this family, failed to use interpretation. And that's how it led to the disastrous consequences of the hotline report. Leah being in foster care, and the significant fracture that occurred between the family and the medical providers. So I share that case because it really reminds us that we need to make sure that we are um, honoring our patients' cultural beliefs, that we are providing them with proper interpretation services, that we are helping to bridge the gap between Western practices and cultural individual Familial, familial practices, and that we are able to make sure that our patients are getting the best possible care, even with their own 
cultural beliefs and wishes. Um, that again, <laughs> wonderful book. Definitely is, recommend it. Thank you. That again is another topic that there's so much there that's worthy of consideration and discussion. And we're barely even scratching the surface, but simply acknowledging the reality of the lenses that we have on culturally and what other people may be wearing and that that's part of this equation. Truly, Diane, there's so much here that we could continue talking about and maybe we will um, in a future episode for our listeners that want to learn more about you, about your work, and also um, find resources for the ideas that you're discussing today. Can you please tell us how to do that? Yes, I would be happy to. So please feel free to visit my website, which is dianebiglertraining.com. That's dianebiglertraining.com. Uh, love to have you visit my website and see the, the different work that I'm doing in terms of trainings. If you would like to get more information on our topic today of self-determination, there's some really great resources. I recommend a documentary called Living and Dying, A Love Story, which talks about an elderly couple that both have terminal illnesses and decide to enact Oregon's death with dignity law. And their children, their adult children actually film this documentary of their last few weeks and the rationale for their decision. And it's just really a beautiful documentary about uh, one's own self-determination, especially at the end of life. So that may be of interest to people. Uh, I also encourage you to connect with uh, a social work professional called Frederick Reamer. Frederick Reamer has written a lot of great um, articles on self-determination that are wonderful to check out as well. And then finally, the Zur Institute, Z-U-R. Zur Institute has a lot of great resources, clinical resources on the topic as well of self-determination. Fantastic. Thank you again for joining us, Diane. It's been just eye-opening and touching to hear you talk about this and to challenge all of us to slow down and think about the implication of the decisions that our clients and patients are faced with. I really appreciate the work that you do and what you bring to the table. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth, for having me. It's been my pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.